If you guys want to join me, we'll be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered there so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And he came to them, bringing a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get him to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down a pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out into the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Well, this morning's text is one that you are likely familiar with, as as Chelsea uh, just read to us. It's a beautiful story. It's a story of Jesus's power to heal. It's Jesus's compassion. Uh, It's a a story of of even the sacrifice of these friends as they are are doing anything to make sure that their friend is able to be brought before Jesus for healing. It's a a story that has a powerful and happy ending. After all, Jesus heals the man. The man gets up immediately. He walks out. Uh, he, He uh, is carried into this house on a bed, and then he just picks it up and goes home. And then the story ends with this mention of the crowd, and everyone is glorifying God. Everyone is praising God. It's this powerful moment. It's beautiful. It's encouraging. And yet, as we've seen uh, through the Gospel of Mark to this point, uh, that there's something deeper. There's something more important that Mark is trying to tell us or teach us by including this in his Gospel. And a couple of weeks ago, as we were in Mark chapter 1 still, we looked at several verses there in Mark 1 that, that really encapsulate the first 30 hours of Jesus' ministry, of his public ministry starting in Capernaum. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 39, tell us uh, about Jesus' authority to heal. It's on full display as Jesus comes into Galilee, is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, and that kingdom really begins to, to show itself or to manifest itself through Jesus's preaching and through his healing. And then we saw in verses 38 and 39, these are a summary of Jesus's ministry in Galilee. Galilee, he goes throughout it and he begins to teach in synagogues. He's healing, he's casting out demons uh, over and over. All of this is happening as he goes from town to town. And as time goes on, Jesus becomes more and more popular and he's surrounded by a crowd that gets larger and larger and larger with each and every healing. And last week we looked at the story of Jesus healing this leper and it ends with this powerful statement that Jesus, after that moment, was not actually even able to enter into towns because there were so many people that were trying to follow him. Now, perhaps surprisingly to us, Mark doesn't give us a detailed description of most or even many of Jesus's healings. 
After all, Mark has shown us that Jesus has this power to heal. It's on full display in verses 29 through 34 of the first chapter. And then he just moves on. Mark is not someone who is going to waste space in his gospel. And so every single time that we see a healing appear in the gospel of Mark after that, we should be asking or, or trying to, to consider what else is Mark trying to teach us. Yes, Mark is trying to reinforce that Jesus has this power to heal, that Jesus has authority to heal, and yet there's something greater in mind as well. And so this morning, as we approach this text, this text that is about Jesus' ability to heal in one sense, what, is, what else does it teach us? How does Mark move us beyond this fact that Jesus can heal people? And that's the question that we have to ask this morning. So as we dive into this text, I want us to just uh, explore it in four parts. This text nicely divides up into four parts, and, and that's how I want us to look at this this morning. First, the setting. Second, the complaint. Third, the question. And fourth, the decision. So as we approach God's word, let's pray once more. Father, even as we uh, sang just a few moments ago, we are in awe that you are a God who speaks to his people. God, we are in awe that throughout the ages that you have spoken through your prophets, and yet even now as your word says, that in these last days you have spoken to us through your son. And so God, as we look at this text, we ask that you would make it clear to us uh, that you make it too clear to your church uh, that your glory is revealed through your Son. And for those of us who are hurting, for those of us who need comfort, we do ask that you would comfort us through the power of these words. God, for those of us who are complacent, those who need to be stirred into action, we ask that you would reignite a zeal within us for you through this text. For those of us who are doubting, for those who are questioning God, we ask that you would remind us of your mercy, that you would remind us of your power that is at work for those who believe. And God, I confess anew that I am uh, inadequate to proclaim your word, and so I just ask that you would be at work through your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, first, let's consider the context or the setting of, these, uh, of this uh, story st uh, starting in verses uh, 1 through 5. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, as we approach this text, I think it's, uh, it's appropriate for us to just briefly mention the, the structure of the beginning of the gospel of Mark. Jesus has been ministering throughout the region of Galilee. Uh, he's been traveling from town to town for some unspecified amount of time. We're not given the information about how long Jesus has been out ministering when this takes place. What is important for us to actually understand as we look at this text is that this text, this story, may have actually happened before what Jesus has already described in verses 40 through 45. Mark is actually one who, who does not group his or order his gospel on chronological order, but instead based off of themes. And so if you look at the, the massive chunk of the end of uh, Mark chapter 1, the focus in all of those stories is on Jesus's growing popularity. 
Jesus becomes more and more popular, more and more famous with the crowds to the point that at the end of the first chapter of Mark, we are given this concluding statement that he is not even able to to fulfill his, his mission of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in the synagogues of each town like he desired. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through chapter 3, verse 6, they start a new section of the gospel. This is a section uh, that really is, is made up of five different stories, and these five different stories all tell us about Jesus and the opposition that he experiences to the gospel. And so if you look at the five stories that make up chapter 2 in the beginning of chapter 3, we see that Jesus begins to face opposition in his ministry while he's traveling throughout Galilee. And in fact, these five stories actually build on one another, and we see that the opposition to Jesus increases as time goes on. And so here in the first text, we see that this opposition is really pretty minor as we start. Take a look at verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, and then we see in verse 7 what they were questioning. It's something that is quiet. It's silent. It's not public. It's something that's internal. But then you get to the end of this section and and look at chapter 3, verse 6, and we see that the opposition has has boiled over into something quite different. Chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out immediately and uh, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And so by the end of this section, we see that this opposition to Jesus, which started quiet, which started internal, actually uh, blossoms into this open plot between mortal enemies on how they're going to kill Jesus. And each of these five stories that we're going to be looking at over the next month or so, uh, each of these five stories are meant to be read with the other four in mind. And so the first and the last, if you look at them, they actually have some parallels. They both focus on healing. The second and the fourth have some parallels. They both focus on eating. And the third one, which is found in the middle, is a helpful text for helping us understand the rest of this section and help us understand how to interpret what Mark is trying to communicate. So take a look at Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch will, uh, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts, a new, puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins." Mark has masterfully placed that story right in the midst of this series on, or this focus on opposition to Jesus. He places it at a place of prominence to help us understand, specifically this morning, our text uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you notice in 2, 18 through 22, which we just read, Jesus is using this simple parable. He uses this parable of clothes, this parable of wineskins, as a way to describe his new covenant, as a way to describe his new kingdom that he is bringing. But even more significantly, he he gives us a glimpse at how this new kingdom is going to operate. Take a look again at verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. 
Here, Jesus is establishing that, yes, he's coming to establish a kingdom. Yes, he brings a kingdom. He's ushering it in. This kingdom will last forever. And yet, there's going to be a day where he, the king, is taken away from his kingdom. Jesus is telling us that the kingdom does not take the same form as the way the world would expect it to do. And so he is going to face opposition, and we should not be surprised by that. He's even going to face opposition from those that we thought were on his side, the the Jewish leaders of the day, and we should not be surprised by that. In fact, we, when we face opposition, should not be surprised at that either. Now back to our text this morning. How does that help us to understand this? Jesus comes back to Capernaum. He comes back after all this time of preaching, and he's likely staying at the home of Simon and Andrew. And word quickly gets out that he's back in town. This is probably the first time that he's been back at Capernaum since that first day, since what we saw in chapter one. And the crowds rush to him. He's swarmed by crowds. Jesus has been gone for months or or weeks at, at the very least. And now he comes and he's surrounded by people. Jesus has returned. The crowds are ready for him. He's at Simon's home. But that doesn't stop the crowds from gathering around him. Dozens of people are crowded into a space that was not meant for that many people. In fact, we have a a picture we'll show you in just a few moments of what it looked like for uh, Simon's what Simon's house looked like. People are coming to him. They're surrounding this house. They're surrounding the walls. Very few people are actually able to enter into this one or two room home, and yet everyone is hoping for a glimpse of the miracle worker. Now, notice significantly Jesus's activity here in Capernaum. What exactly is Jesus doing? Well, he's still preaching. Jesus is still preaching. Through it all, Jesus has not lost his focus on his mission of the kingdom, this message of the kingdom. A few people have understood what Jesus is proclaiming. We've seen that over the last couple of weeks. Jesus comes to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, to, to bring people to faith, to bring people to repentance, and yet people instead are just interested in a miracle worker, someone who can do something that looks pretty cool. Jesus has been out there. He's been proclaiming the gospel. He's been proclaiming people to come to uh, uh, repentance, to come to faith, hoping that some will actually respond in that. And that's what Jesus is doing here as we begin our text. Now, we don't know how long Jesus has been preaching. We don't know how large the, the crowd is. But at some point, as our text tells us, there's this group of men who show up carrying, carrying their paralyzed friend with them. And of course, getting into Jesus's uh, presence at this moment is absolutely impossible. The crowds are surrounding him. Uh, There's no way for him to fit into this. And yet we see the incredible love of these friends as they bring their friend to Jesus and and probably a little bit of recklessness as we're going to see here as well. They are focused on getting their friend to Jesus because they know who Jesus is. They know that Jesus is this one who can heal them. Now, it's common for first century homes in Palestine to uh, have a a roof that you could um, actually stand on, that you could fellowship on. Uh, There were stairways oftentimes to these roofs. uh, And in these homes, the roof was actually a common place in in the evening uh, for people to gather for fellowship and and to enjoy uh, company with one another. I mentioned earlier that we have a photo of what uh, this house looked like. Archaeologists have actually found Peter's home in Capernaum, and we know uh, what it looks like and what, um, what this compound would have looked like. And this is a small picture, um, but you'll notice that this is a, an entire compound, and right in the middle of this compound is a courtyard, and then just to the, um, I guess if you're looking from this side, to the left of that, there's this open space. And that's actually most likely where this took place, where Jesus is proclaiming this message. It's a small 
small one or two room house where Jesus has got all of these people pressed around him and people are flooded through the courtyards. They're, they're all hoping to catch a glimpse of who Jesus is at this moment. Now, I want you to imagine what this would have looked like having that picture in mind. Those courtyards are brimming with people who are hoping to catch a glimpse of Jesus. The the people are packed in there so tightly that you can barely walk. Hundreds of people are waiting outside while the lucky few are actually in that room at the center of the compound with Jesus. And yet, these four friends will not be denied. They push They claw, they possibly fight people in order to get to the stairs so that way they can climb up to the roof with their plan. And they haul their friend up the stairs to the roof, and then they actually start ripping the roof apart. Now, last uh, Christmas Eve was the first time that our churches had not had nursery uh, for a service. We decided to let our families all just worship together. And that was actually the first time that my kids, my two toddlers, uh, have heard me preach. And I was terrified of them being in the service because nothing distracts me when I preach except for the cry of my own two children. And so as I was walking up there, I was, I was just nervous, nervous, nervous because I just knew that these kids who had no idea what dad does on a Sunday morning would be out there and they'd say, hey, what is he doing up there? And they'd start talking to me because after all, it's dad. Why wouldn't we talk to him? And I was terrified. Well, they did a pretty good job. But I know that that was something that would distract me, and I imagine if someone was clawing through the roof this morning, that would distract me from preaching as well. I think a lot of times when we think of this text, we can think of it in a very clean way, that almost like this is uh, an elevator door that's somehow on the roof, and they just press a button, and the, the roof slides open, and then they magically or just miraculously lower this man down, and there's this perfectly shaped space in the floor right in front of Jesus, and everything is clean, it's pristine, and everyone knew it was coming, and everyone just is like clapping, all right, yeah, all right, this is what we've been waiting for. That is not at all what is taking place place at this moment. This is something that would have been loud. It would have been very distracting. It would have been messy. It would have covered people in dirt and straw and dust. It probably would have angered people because they're packed in there really tight and there's not enough space for this small bed to come down unless it's coming down on someone. And now they're forced to squeeze even tighter together in this space that's already too small for them or they're going to be crushed by this bed. And so there's this hole now in the ceiling, and Jesus looks up through this new skylight and says, sorry, Simon, I guess this is what your house is going to be like for now. And then he looks down at this man, this man who is on this mat, and he knows instantly what the people want him to do. And yet Jesus does something completely different. He says something completely different. See, Jesus knows what the friends are after. Jesus knows what this man wants. Jesus knows that the crowds are now on the edge of their seat because they're waiting for him to say, be healed. And Jesus could have given them exactly what they wanted. Jesus could have given them exactly what they wanted. They would have been eating out of his hand for the rest of his life. And yet here, Jesus... Jesus has been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's been proclaiming this message of repentance, of faith in him. He's been doing it for weeks. He's been doing it for months. And very few people are actually responding the way he wants to. And so now he sees the perfect opportunity for him to get his message across. And so he does not say, get up and walk, as Jesus has surely done before. 
He does not say get up and walk. Instead, he says something completely different. Words that would have been blasphemy for a mere man to say them. Son, your sins are forgiven. And that phrase, your sins are forgiven, that's the basis for the complaint that we see from the scribes starting in verse 6. That's our second section, verses 6 and 7. Take a look. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes are the religious experts of the day. Luke tells us that these scribes weren't just the local ones that were mentioned earlier in Mark, but they're actually scribes who who came from Jerusalem. They came from Jerusalem in order to check out the validity of this miracle worker and teacher in Galilee. Take a look at Luke 5, verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. See, these are religious leaders of Judaism who have come from a long distance to judge about what type of person Jesus is, what type of teacher Jesus is. Is he a heretic? Is he a rival? Or is he a brother that we can welcome into full fellowship? Now, little that Jesus has said about the gospel, little that Jesus has said about the kingdom to this point has has riled them up until he utters these words, your sins are forgiven. I think a lot of times when we, uh, when we, underst- uh, when we look at this, we, we can just kind of condemn the scribes right off the bat. We can say, well, the scribes were completely wrong, and yet that misses what's taking place. In fact, if we look at what the scribes say, we can see that there were two positive things that they did and two negative things that they did. First, the positive. Uh, their theology is correct, significantly. Their theology is correct. They recognize that God alone has the authority to forgive sins. Now, Jesus' words here are not just words of assurance. They're not like what I have said occasionally on Sunday mornings, standing before you and saying, I assure you, based off of the work of Christ, based off of what Jesus has done, based off of the assurance that God's word gives to his people that your sins are forgiven. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is making a declaration. He's saying, I forgive you your sins. And so their theology is correct. They're saying, you know what? Only God is, has, the, has the authority to do that. Second, we also see that their logic is correct too. If Jesus is going to make this declaration, if Jesus is going to say, your sins are forgiven, that I forgive you your sins, then Jesus is making a claim about who he is. At the very least, Jesus is claiming that he is God's representative, that he is sent by God as his representative in a way that the God has instrumented the priesthood. And yet Jesus is saying, I forgive you your sins. He's at least claiming that he is God's representative. He might actually be claiming something more. He might be saying, you know what? I'm not just God's representative. I am in some way God himself. The scribes are not dumb. They understand the theology of of the background to this, and they also can follow what Jesus is saying. They're following his logic that Jesus is making a claim here. So those are the two positive things that the scribes do. The two negative things, uh, obviously the scribes reach the wrong conclusion. The scribes reach the wrong conclusion. They conclude that it is impossible for Jesus to be God's representative. In spite of all the miracles, in spite of all of the authoritative teaching about the kingdom, in spite of the fact that to this point, Jesus has said things that are faithful and glorifying to God, uh, they, they conclude at this moment that Jesus is blaspheming. It's impossible for Jesus to not be blaspheming. So that's, they reach the wrong conclusion. And second, I think more significantly, they respond the wrong way as well. Notice that this text tells us that the the scribes, they question this in their hearts. 
They don't vocalize it. It's just something that is taking place in their hearts. Now, remember why they're there. They are there to make sure that Jesus is faithful, that he is not a heretic, that they can sign off on his teaching. They are there to make sure that Jesus is not a false prophet. They want to protect the people of God from this false prophet if necessary. And here we see this moment. Jesus says these words, and they conclude, yeah, he's a false prophet. And yet they don't say anything. They don't do anything. They just question in their hearts. They grumble in their hearts. They never speak up. They remain silent. They refuse to possibly draw the ire of the crowd. There's another time when the, when the religious leaders do this as well. It's at the end of the Gospel of Mark when Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. It says this, Jesus asked, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then didn't you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John was really a prophet. They don't believe themselves, and yet they don't want to, uh, to address the crowds for the sake of losing their place of prominence in Israel. So that's the, the complaint that we see here. Now, now transition to our third section. How does Jesus respond? Well, he responds with a question in verses nine, or 8 through 11. rather. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Mark starts this text by pointing out that Jesus notices the grumbling in their hearts. It's a not-so-subtle declaration of who Jesus is. We know from Scripture that only God is the one who knows the, the depths of a person's heart. And here, it's almost a throwaway phrase. And Jesus notices what's taking place in their hearts. It's a declaration of who Jesus is. And then he responds to them. He responds to this question in their hearts in a very common way for rabbis in the first century, from arguing from the lesser to the greater. So let's take a look at, at, at Jesus' question. When Jesus says, which is easier here, there's several layers that we can, we can peel apart as we look at this text, and I think that this question, when Jesus says, which is easier for me to say, I forgive you your sins, or for me to say, get up and walk, that question is the key to understanding the, the focus of what Mark is trying to communicate here. So first layer, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, in the most basic sense, both are easy to say if you don't have to back anything up. You're not trying to prove anything. You can just say either of them. And I would venture a guess that everyone here would have very little problem vocalizing these two phrases. Any of us would not be trying to back it up and saying, you know what, I actually can forgive your sins or I'm actually going to make you get up and walk. It's just something that you say. And so on the most basic level, Jesus is pointing out that these two phrases, well, there's not that much difference between the two of them. But you look at a second layer, you go a little bit deeper, and you see that Jesus is trying to communicate something a little bit more significant. Which is easier, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, if we're going to ask someone to, to not just say these words, but actually follow through with what Jesus just said to the paralytic, well, both are equally impossible. After all, none of us out of our own might would be able to forgive someone their sins. None of us out of our own might are going to be able to heal a paralytic of our own accord. And so we dig a little bit deeper here 
And we see that Jesus is not just saying that these are the same on the, the surface, but if you're going to back them up, they're also the same as well. That, and he's hinting here that if you can do one, then you should probably give credence to the fact that he might be able to do the other as well. Let's look at another layer, third layer, going even deeper. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? In another sense, it's a whole lot easier for a person like me to say to you, your sins are forgiven, than it is for me to say, get up and walk. And, and that, or the reason for that is, is because no one is going to be able to give definitive proof on whether I can actually forgive sins. In this life, you're not actually going to have definitive proof on whether I can forgive sins or not. But if I'm going to say to you, get up and walk, there's going to be some definitive proof one way or the other. There's going to be proof that I can back that up or not by the person right there that I'm talking to. If they don't get up, then it's a statement of who I am. But if they do get up, it's also a statement of who I am. And so Jesus here is saying, he's, he's tying these two things together. And he's saying to, basically saying, if you're going to try to fool people here, if you're going to try to fool people into thinking that someone's special, you should just say all the time, you should say, your sins are forgiven, and never say, get up and walk. Because the moment you say, get up and walk, and people don't see that you can follow through on that, they're gonna be, they're fine, they will find out that you are a fraud. But if you do say, get up and walk, and it actually happens, then again, it gives credence to the fact that you might actually be able to forgive sins as well. And indeed, that's what Jesus is doing when he ties these two things together in verses 10 and 11. Jesus is frustrated with the scribes, and he says, which is easier? Which is easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And then he just says, all right, fine. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive, uh, on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic. He looks at him and says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And here, Jesus is, is using this healing of the paralytic as a powerful vindication or valid, powerful validation of his ability to forgive sins. He's saying, fine, you don't believe that I can forgive sins, then I will show you that I can forgive sins by saying to this man right now, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. Jesus, for this whole time, it's almost like he's been saying, all right, fine. I've been teaching you over and over and over and over about the kingdom of God, and this whole time I've been calling you to repent. I've been calling you to, to believe in the gospel, and yet you are so infatuated with my ability to heal, with my authority over creation in these moments that you keep missing the point. And so here's the deal. I want you to listen to me closely. I want you to listen closely. I'm going about to heal this man. I'm going to heal him. I'm going to say to him, get up and walk. And I want you to see something more than just healing. Start at the healing, but don't stop there. Go deeper. Think about the implications of what I am saying and what I am doing. If I'm able to heal this person by saying to him, get up and walk, do you not think that there is something deeper going on when I also say your sins are forgiven? Jesus is using this as a very, very powerful illustration to the crowds that have been ignoring him the entire time. There's something to what I've been saying. Are you going to listen? Pay attention to my miracles, but don't stop there. Listen to what I've been preaching. You see, Jesus' authority here 
this authority to heal is, is meant to validate his claim that he also has the authority to forgive sins. That Jesus is not just someone who can heal, he's also someone who can forgive sins. If he can do one, then you should also conclude that he can do the other. But it also draws us or drives us to a decision point. And that's the fourth section of this text, and that's the response of the crowds, this decision from the crowds. Read the final verse, verse 12. And he rose and immediately, he being the, the paralytic, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Here, Jesus offers the proof. And now the crowds have to make a decision. They have to make a decision. Are they going to accept Jesus on his terms? Are they going to look at the miracle? Are they going to marvel at the miracle, but then go deeper than just his authority to heal, but to his authority to heal their greatest need to forgive their sins? Or are they just going to stay on the surface? Are they just going to be content with a little bit of Jesus, a Jesus that they can keep at a distance, that they can marvel at, that they can say, wow, we've never seen anything like this? and then go home completely unchanged? Or are they gonna go deeper and allow this Jesus who has authority to forgive sins to actually transform their lives? And unfortunately, what we see from the crowds here is they, as they so often do in Mark, they are amazed, they, they marvel, they even glorify God. It's a good thing to glorify God, of course, and yet they give God glory only for what they have seen and not what they've heard. They don't give glory to God because he can forgive sins. They give glory to God because he has healed. This is a good thing. They glorify God because a paralyzed man is now able to walk, and they should do that. And yet, they miss the deeper focus of Jesus' healing. They, they, don't, they, they don't go deeper. They don't, they don't praise God for his willingness to forgive sin, which is infinitely more beautiful, infinitely more powerful, infinitely more glorious than his ability to make the lame walk. You see, through all this, Jesus is trying to get beneath the surface. He's trying to say something deeper. He's trying to say that our, our greatest need is not for physical healing. Our greatest need is not in this material world. It is for us instead to be made right with God. Jesus is reminding us that we have so offended God, that we have rebelled against him, that we have rebelled against his perfect plan because we wanted to enthrone ourselves as gods of our own lives that something like this, the paralysis of this man, as serious as it is, is not the biggest need of our lives. It is not the greatest concern that we should be focused on. Paul describes our miserable state at the beginning of Ephesians 2. He says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is saying that paralysis is not our greatest need to be healed. He tells us that we were all once dead, that we were all once children of wrath, that we were in desperate need for someone to come and rescue us from the very pit of hell. 
And Jesus here is pleading with the crowds to recognize that their greatest need is not for physical healing as good and as beautiful and as important as that is. It is instead to recognize the message of the gospel of the kingdom that he has been proclaiming this entire time. Mark chapter 1 verse 15, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, there's one final layer in Jesus's phrase here in, in verse nine. I think it gets to the core of what Jesus is communicating when he talks about the message of the gospel. When Jesus says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. The reality is for Jesus, it is infinitely easier for him to say, get up and walk. Because of how much it is going to cost him to be able to say your sins are forgiven. With how much it is going to cost him to say your sins are forgiven. If Jesus is really going to be able to back up that claim, if Jesus is really going to be able to say, I have the authority to forgive sins, then that means the cross. That means death. That means it's going to cost him everything. And yet in giving up everything, he's going to gain everything for those who would believe. You see, Mark chapter 2 is more than just a wonderful story about healing. It's more than a wonderful story about friendship. It's about how much it is going to cost Jesus, not to just heal them for 40 years, not to just heal them for 50 years for the rest of their lives, but instead to heal them forever. How much is going to cost Jesus to put sin to death, to defeat death Itself. And so as we close, remember the charge of this text. Marvel first at the cost of forgiveness. Marvel first at the cost of forgiveness. That's what this text is trying to tell us. It's trying to communicate to us clearly that the cost of forgiveness is so great. It is so infinite that, that yes, we glorify God when we see beautiful things at work, important things at work today, and yet don't stop. But start marveling Christ, God, for the cost of forgiveness. Don't forget how much you need that forgiveness. How will you respond to the message of the gospel? We've talked about this over and over again, that Mark, he's so short when he's telling us these stories, and he, he gives us very little commentary. Basically, he just tells a story, and then he leaves it open-ended, oftentimes with this question, like the crowds here. We've never seen anything like this. That's a very in, intentional method of teaching from Mark, where he's saying, all right, you're in the crowd spot. You're in the crowd. How will you respond? How will you respond to the message of forgiveness, the cost of forgiveness? Will you respond like the crowds, with a little Jesus here and now, or marvel, be fully consumed with the message of the kingdom and the message of the cross? Let's pray. Jesus, we are humbled and in awe that it was so easy for you being God 
to say, get up and walk, and yet you chose to say your sins are forgiven. It is a declaration of your love. It is a declaration of your sacrifice, of your willingness to endure anything and everything to reconcile, to redeem us, to bring us back into your family. We stand amazed at the cross, God. And God, I pray that that, that marvel, that amazement would, would not just, uh, just stay there, but it would be transformative in our lives, that we would see the implications of the gospel, that the, the implications of the cost of forgiveness is that we also are called to a radical discipleship, that we also are called to live lives that honor and glorify you with every fiber of our being, that the call of the gospel is one that transforms us. So help us, God, to marvel at the cross, to marvel at the cost of forgiveness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.